We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Acts chapter 1, please, tonight. Acts chapter 1. Uh, we finished our series in the Gospel of Matthew, and I thought I would just step into the book of Acts and uh, see what is here. I, I preached last this uh, portion in the book of, or in the Bible in November of 2011. So that puts it uh, 11 and a half years ago or so. Um, and uh, we've been here before, but in more detail. Every time I go through these, I get more, you know, insight and learn, and that's good for me and I hope good for you as well. Of course, you probably don't remember all the things we learned that long ago, right? Uh, and some of you weren't even here. So um, the book of Acts, let me read the first few verses. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that be Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. I'll pause the reading there and just uh, start right in, ask us ourselves the question, what should we call this book? It's commonly called the Acts of the Apostles, but we might consider calling it Second Luke because it's Luke's second book, right? So sometimes uh, books uh, were called, you know, First Peter, Second Peter. Well, we could have First Luke, Second Luke. Uh, Acts of the Apostles is commonly used. What about Acts of the Holy Spirit? Sometimes people use that. How about History of the Early Church? That would be another one. We might have some more comments on that in a few moments. But Theophilus was the original recipient of the letter, and we can surmise a few things about him. Although, if we go beyond uh, that too much, we're just going to get into a speculation. We simply don't know who he was. Some have suggested that Theophilus is not even a real person. That was an alias, maybe for anybody who would receive the book, maybe a code name of somebody because of persecution. I am myself strongly inclined to think that he was a real person known to Luke, um, because you'll see uh, that he is mentioned uh, in Luke. Let's see, uh, where is it? Verse 3 of Luke, verse 3 of chapter 1, it seemed good to me also, Luke says, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. So it seems like he is writing to a, a highly placed, prominent person in society that wants to know either to learn the faith or he's an, a new believer or perhaps Luke is writing a defense of the faith to show that it's not a threat to the Roman government. Whatever the case is, uh, we have the content of the letter to uh, go through and see what it says to decide uh, maybe on that question. 
Uh, it certainly could function in all of those ways. Luke is a careful historian. Uh, now, he's known as a physician, right? But just because you're a physician doesn't mean you can't be at least an armchair historian. And he's a historian. Uh, he references a lot of people and locations to help place the book in its historical context. Now, let me just share with you the list of people that I found, individuals, and I'm not going to focus on places. You can go through and do that exercise sometime. Maybe if you want, do that, type it out, send me the list. I'll put it right in my notes here. I'll add that, okay? So, um, but I did the people. And Luke, you know, he's not making this stuff up. Okay, he has historical figures, historical people that he's talking about, historical events, interactions between these people. Now, listen how many people he talks about. Luke, of course, talks about Jesus, okay, obviously. He mentions Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and of course, Judas Iscariot as well, he mentions, right? He mentions Mary, the mother of Jesus. He mentions the brothers of Jesus. He doesn't give their names, but we know them to be James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. He mentions Matthias, who took Judas's place, and Joseph um, called Justice, or Barsabas, whose last name was Justice. He mentions him as well. He mentions Gamaliel, Stephen, the most famous of the deacons, and uh, Philip and Prochorus Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas other deacons. He mentions Simon the sorcerer, the Ethiopian official, of course, Paul, also Saul, Ananias, Barnabas, Silas, Aeneas, Dorcas, who's also called Tabitha. Remember all these names? Luke has put all of these names in his book, indicating the reality of what he's writing. He wrote about Cornelius, Rhoda the servant girl, Blastus, the king's Official, Herod Agrippa I, Timothy, Gallio, Felix and Portius Festus, Caesar, Ananias, the high priest, that is Ananias, Claudius, and the Jews that were expelled from Rome. He mentions a group called the Assassins. He mentions Herod Agrippa II, Sergius Paulus of Paphos, Jason, whose house was next to the synagogue, Dionysius the Areopagite, Damaris, also in, uh, from uh, Athens, Crispus and Sosthenes, both rulers of their respective synagogues. Luke mentions Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos, Demetrius. Now, he, he knew all, most all these people. He knew them or knew of them or had some close interaction with them. He mentioned the four virgin daughters of Philip, Agabus, who was a prophet from Judea, a centurion who bought his Roman citizenship, Paul's sister and son, who were unnamed, he mentions the Roman commander named Claudius Lysias. He mentions a fellow named Publius on the island of Malta, Sopater of Berea, Aristarchus, Segundus, Gaius, Tychicus, and Trophimus. At least 64 people I just listed that Luke is writing about, named individuals, as well as others in unnamed uh, or in groups, um, uh, numerous cities, regions are named, all actual places, not mystical ones. That's because Luke is writing real history here. I'm saying all this for a reason. I think you'll see why in just a moment. I'm going to use this as a defense 
of the content and inspiration of the text of Scripture. Okay, Very clear what's going on here. These and other references help us, for example, to place the Bible books in the New Testament into a historical chronology. For example, the Bible tells us, well, it doesn't tell us explicitly, but we can kind of put the dots together to figure out that Paul wrote Romans in A.D. 56 while he was in Corinth, recorded in the book of Acts. Paul's connection to Erastus is mentioned, and that helps us... um, Two, Erastus was the treasurer of the city, mentioned in an inscription that was found in 1929 in Corinth. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, mentioned in the Bible. As another example, Paul wrote the two books to the Thessalonians in A.D. 50-51 to while he was in Corinth in around Acts 18. And then he wrote 1 Corinthians in 55 A.D. when he was in Ephesus, in, eight, uh, in Acts 19. So the time, the time frames and the chronologies, you can fit them all together and see. Book of Acts reads a lot faster than it happened. It happened over many years, over, uh, well, a long time actually, from A.D. 30 up to somewhere near 60, like a generation of time has gone by. You know, because the, these, these missionary journeys... You know, you, they don't just happen. Like you read an email from a missionary, he summarizes everything that happened in the last year, like in a few paragraphs. But it took a year to do that. There was a lot of travel, a lot of back and forth, a lot of, you know, kind of plain Jane stuff that was happening in his life and all of that. Well, Paul had all that too. Now, let me just say as an aside, as to the historical nature of the Bible, I ran across recently a severe critic of the Christian faith, okay? a very ungodly man, a very uh, kind of sour fellow when it comes to religion. And I'm not going to mention his name. Um, he's dead now. But uh, he trashed our belief in the virgin birth of Christ. He gave several examples of other religions that believe in virgin births and then dismissed Christianity as just another one of those. Now, how would you handle that from a fellow who is super smart, very well read, very well written? How would you handle that? Well, uh, you would say, well, of course, uh, there are a lot of religious myths. Romulus and Remus were supposed to have been born of a virgin. You know them, right? Romulus and Remus, the founders of Rome. The Buddha supposedly was, at least some believe. Have you ever heard of Zoroastrianism, the Persian religion? Zoroaster was supposed to have been born of a virgin. The Muslim poet Kabir in 1440 supposedly was birthed by a Hindu virgin, sent down a river in a basket and adopted by a Muslim family. Sound familiar? Yeah, just um, about 2,800 years late, uh, later than what happened with Moses. The Aztec, and I'll try to spell this, Quetzalcoatl, I can't remember if that's exactly how you say it, but you probably studied him in school, uh, was supposedly born of a virgin, although I don't remember reading that in school. And the wizard Merlin. You remember Merlin from uh, uh, what English lore, I guess you would say? Would that be right? 
Yeah, um, supposedly born of a virgin. Even Melchizedek, according to the second book of Enoch, was born a virgin of a virgin. Um, the critic that, dis, that, that gave these examples, not these examples, but many other examples, dismissed the Christian account of the Virgin Mary by reason that it's just another in a long line of similar religious myths. And although the critique sounds devastating, two faults are evident with this approach. First of all, just because there are many false stories that share an element or a similarity with the Bible story doesn't mean that all of them are false. There are many flood legends throughout the world, hundreds of them in hundreds of different cultures. But that doesn't mean there was no flood. In fact, it only supports the idea that there was a flood, and that's the origin of the flood legends that have come down to us today because they derive from the one real global deluge that happened during Noah's time. It's simply a logical fallacy to say many stories are false, so this similar story is false. That's the fallacy of overgeneralization. But it sounds really smart when a forceful critic brings them to a large group of people. People aren't thinking. It's the fallacy of overgeneralization. The second fault is this. Religious tales, I call them tales, T-A-L-E-S, that are cited as similar examples are dissimilar in one important regard. They are ahistorical, ahistorical. They're clearly legend. We tell these fantastic stories about, you know, deities or demigods or semi-god-like people having relations and creating children who are either gods or half-gods or something, or uh, these people with no record, no, no eyewitness testimony of, of uh, being bir- uh, virgin-birthed. They're clearly legend, myth. But by contrast, the information recorded in Matthew and Luke is not clearly legend or myth, certainly not clearly so. In fact, it seems to bear all the marks of actual history. For example, there are real named people. The two primary people, Joseph and Mary, are described in detail. One feature of their description stands out to me at least, more than all the rest. And that is, each of them is backed up with a very long genealogy. And you say, oh, those genealogies are so boring. They are so important. They are proving Joseph all the way back to David and Abraham and and Jesus through Mary's lineage back to also David and farther and farther back to Abraham and all the way to God, to Adam, being created by God. These are real people with real ties to the human race. They're not just some people that they, you know, made up this name and made up this God and they had a kid and that was the creation of the world or something crazy like that. These are real people with a long pedigree tying them to the human race. Then there are also a multiplicity of eyewitnesses, including writers, one of whom who we're studying here, Luke, is a very careful historian. Okay, so... We have all the marks of history, not marks of legend. In as much as you say that, well, virgin births don't happen. Well, that's why it's a miracle. That is 
the case. Now, if you go around and look up, there are lots of people who claim to have virgin uh, births, conceptions and births. Uh, not, uh, not, uh, the majority of them are not able to be substantiated. Uh, parthenogenesis uh, is certainly not a thing that naturally happens although some have said, and there's some kind of circumstances and some strange things that have happened, but uh, this is certainly a historical account that we have in Luke's gospel. And uh, I just point that out to say, look, what Luke is continuing to do is give us history here, history, not made-up things. And we're, we're really willing to say, look, if the history is false, then the faith is false, okay? It's, it's historical, now, the major subject of Acts in verse 1 is the, he says, the former account that he made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. What he's saying is, my book here is a continuation of my other book. It's just carrying on with the same material that's, you know, the, this new stuff that's happened since Jesus ascended into heaven, right, right around that time. In the earlier book, he began, or he covered what Jesus began to do and to teach until his ascension to heaven. Now, if, if in book one, Jesus began to do these things, what is he doing in book two? He's continuing. He began it, he's continuing it. Jesus began, and now Jesus is continuing. How is he doing that? We can see it maybe most directly if we think of say, the Apostle Paul, going on the road to Damascus. Who, sh who shows up? Jesus. He goes into Damascus. Ananias is there. Who shows up? Jesus, telling him to go to Paul and get him you know, moving on the right path. Jesus is continuing to do his work, but mostly not directly, but through the agency of the Holy Spirit working through the apostles. You with me? Well, that's Jesus too, because he says, when I leave... I'm going to send my you know, replacement to come and be with you, and he will be with you forever and be in you. So no surprise, he ascends to heaven, and now the next phase of Jesus' work in the world begins. That phase, by the way, continues today, okay? Uh, which is one of my reasons for going over the Great Commission in such detail when I ended the Gospel of Matthew to say, the resources, for example, that God, that Jesus gave us in doing the Great Commission, he still gives today. Now, my prayer has been, and increasingly right now in this very season, Lord, give us more souls. He's given us many good gifts. He's given us resources, tools, um, but we need people. We need to win people to the Lord. And um, we should not be shy and retiring about that because he's given us the resources. All authority has been given, right? Uh, he's given us his spirit. He's given us his word. He's given us assurance. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Uh, he's given us power in, right in this portion that we're looking at here. He's given us all that stuff. So why should we be scared about carrying out the Great Commission? We shouldn't be. So um, things are starting to take a new turn here or starting a new era. 
this work was done by the Spirit, working through the apostles and other believers, and uh, they were to continue this very important work that he had begun among them. But it's a different, a little bit of a different work than what he had initially told them to do. Uh, we'll come to that in just a moment. So um, there's another ingredient that we've alluded to, and that is that Jesus said in John 14 that he would not leave them as orphans, but he would send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with them and guide them, John 16. This truth would be the truth that Jesus would give, to the, give the Spirit to convey to the apostles and by extension to the church. So the Spirit is the you know, so-called replacement or extension of Jesus' ministry in the life of the early church. The Holy Spirit is mentioned 41 times in the book's 28 chapters. Now that's uh, not counting all the times that it's, he's mentioned just as Spirit, not Holy Spirit, but Spirit is another dozen times so well over 50 times he's mentioned at least tw- about twice a chapter almost in the book. Jesus is continuing to work in the world, but not directly by his presence. He's instead working through the Spirit of God. So we might call the book the continuing work of the Lord in the early church or the work of the Holy Spirit in the early church because the Spirit did continue Jesus' work in the world. Just a couple of other thoughts before we close. The book of Acts is a uh, transitional book. What we mean by that is it is taking us from the era of the law to the era of the church. There's always a little bit of fog when you go from one kind of big era of history to another. Um, You know, like, are are we... uh, this is a terrible thing, way to think, but are we in the beginning of World War III right now? We don't know, but in 10 years we probably will know, right? Just like when the beginnings of it happened in World War I and II, each of them happened in Europe in the different places where they were like, well, are we going to get... Well, we found out soon enough, you know, December 7, 1941 and all that, it became clear. So there's always a transitional period between what we call dispensations, where things are a bit up in the air and people are not sure exactly where they stand. The transition between, for example, the dispensation of conscience and human government in the Old Testament happened around Genesis 6 through 9. What was the event that occurred in those chapters that transitioned the world from one era to the next? Well, that's the flood. One year, the world was in suspended animation while Noah and his other seven family members were there floating on that boat and nobody else was alive, God transitioned the world from the pre-flood state to the post-flood state in that one year. And so that is what I count as the transitional period between dispensations. Um, The transition between the present dispensation of the church today and what comes after the church, what great age in world history, the kingdom, What's the transitional period between those two things? You have the rapture followed by the tribulation, seven years. So there is another tempestuous time of judgment, just like the flood, transitioning between the church and the millennial kingdom. And so, yeah, things will be up in the air for sure uh, during the tribulation. Um, The book of Acts itself records the transition from the law 
to the church. And so some things were up in the air in, in the minds of people that were involved. For example, the express command of Jesus was to be witnesses not only in Jerusalem, but also in Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. But in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus gave a different instruction. He said, I want you to go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Remember that? That blows people away when they say, what do you mean? He said, don't go to the Gentiles. Of course, he didn't. In Matthew 10, he didn't say to go to the Gentiles. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Don't go to Samaritans. Don't go to Gentiles. Stay right there. So there's, it's a difference now. Secondly, the movement of the gospel to the Samaritans and uh, to an Ethiopian official happened after an initial focus on Jerusalem. And what had to happen for the apostles and Christians, mainly the other Christians, to get moved out of Jerusalem? Persecution. <laughs> they, were, they were scattered abroad preaching the gospel of Jesus wherever they went. The persecution of, of Stephen, the persecution started by Paul and so on. So that was a tool that God used to accomplish the movement of people around. Then there's the special revelation to Peter in Acts chapter 10. I mean, Peter is in the mindset still, look, I can't eat unclean food, therefore I can't have table fellowship with unclean people. In Acts chapter 10, God lets down that sheet in Peter's vision. He says, rise, kill, and eat. And he said, Lord, Lord I've never done that. I'm not going to do that. Three times the Lord does that. And Peter realizes, oh, I'm kind of slow. It took three times for me to get the lesson that I can't call any man common or unclean because I can't call the food unclean anymore. So that transitioned Peter to the new era. You had the church council in Acts 15. They had to meet to figure out, what do we do about the law of Moses? Uh, do we have to command Gentiles to be circumcised? Do they have to keep the law of Moses to be saved? And so there was struggle between two factions to get the, come out with the right answer. And we see what the answer came out to be uh, led by God's Spirit and the apostles. And then, of course, you see the spread of the gospel through the ministry of the Apostle Paul in Acts 13 to the end of the book. Um, you see things like, here's my last one, but just the confusion about the status of disciples in Acts 19. Uh, have you heard of the Holy Spirit? I mean, no, he didn't say it that. He said this way. He said, Paul said, have you received the Holy Spirit after you believed? And they said, we've never even heard there is a Holy Spirit. Oops. <laughs> well, you, you missed a few you know, key parts of the program here, guys. Let's get you up to speed. Apollos is another example. He was a, came out of Egypt, Alexandria, mighty uh, orator, eloquent, knew the scriptures, preaching along, and Priscilla and Aquila have to come along and say, hey, you know, let me, let's talk a little bit. You know, you know, kind of up to John's baptism or whatever, and, but you got to, you know, get the rest up to speed here. So uh, he was helped out by them. So a lot of, you know, kind of fog, lack of clarity, confusion. It was all being ironed out over this first, well, say 30 to 40 years of the church's history. And that speaks to the transitional nature of the book. So we have to uh, carry on with our study here starting in verse 2 next time. But we're past 8 o'clock, so we won't do any more of that tonight. All right? So hopefully that's been an interesting little uh, dive for you into the book of Acts just to kind of get the idea of what's going on there. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for this uh, book of history, tremendous book. And Lord, many of us would say, oh, I'm not much of a student of history. I don't like reading history, but I like the book of Acts. And uh, although I'm not a, a reader, an avid reader of other history, it certainly is interesting to see how the early church began and how they dealt with all the problems that people deal with today how they address the the relationship of the law to the church and how to reach out to a broad group of people, not just people like themselves and the Jewish nation, um, and and how all of that stuff fit together. So, Lord, I pray that you'd help us as we maybe spend a few weeks here looking at the book of Acts and trying to understand it a little bit better. Thank you for the uh, time we've had tonight, and may you strengthen us for your use and purposes. Lord, fill up this place on uh, Sundays and Wednesdays. We're just asking you now, Lord. We're looking to you for your supply. In Jesus' name, amen.